Hey there, this is Felix. You know, All Latino is taking a break from making new shows for a bit while we regroup for the upcoming year. So we'll be taking a deep dive into our archive and pulling out some of our favorite coverage throughout the years. From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. This week, we mark the last week of Black History Month by bringing back an episode that celebrates the contributions of Afro-Latinx cultural figures across Latin America. In February of 2014, former alt-Latino host Jasmine Garst and I had a conversation with the folks behind the Latinegras Project. Bianca Laureano and Daniel Familia were two of the minds behind the fantastic digital archive on Tumblr that dove deep into the history, culture, and current events involving Afro-Latino artists across Latin America. In the following interview, Jasmine and I spoke to Bianca and Danielle about their work with the project, notable Afro-Latinx cultural figures, and the music that underscores it all. If you've been following our show, you hopefully have noticed our commitment to telling Afro-Latino stories, sharing music by Afro-Latinx musicians, and hopefully fostering an understanding about Afro-Latino culture even within our own communities. Here's our interview with Bianca Laureano and Daniel Familia of the Latinegras Project. So I, I tried to describe why I'm such a big fan of, of your project, but why don't you tell us a little bit more what the project is about? Sure. Thanks, Jasmine. So we started the Latinegros project about five years ago because we just didn't see ourselves represented, not only online, but just in various forms of media. So we took to the virtual spaces that were available, which at the time was Tumblr. It was really new. It was um, very youth-centric, and it still is. And we created a space where people could submit images, film, video, um, poems, writings, links, whatever they felt represented them as Latinegros, Black Latinos, Caribeños, etc. And it took off in a way that we just never imagined. So so let's talk a little bit about the, the impetus behind the project. I mean, I think, first of all, you know, we're talking about Black History Month here in the U.S. and about the experience of being Black and Latino here mm -hmm. in the U.S. and some of the conflicts that has historically caused. I mean, um, it, it's two identities that unfortunately are uh, sometimes seen as almost in opposition here in mm -hmm. the U.S. I mean, how do you guys live that reality? Well, for me, um, I grew up in the United States, and I am Dominican. Uh, however, I am of African descent, so I identify as Afro-Latino. And growing up, I always uh, was in a space of, I would say, denial and also lost because I never really saw myself. And I always knew in the back of my mind, I never had a vocabulary for it at the time, but I knew that I had something um, that I shared with African-Americans. And I knew that it was there, but however... I was not black, you know, I was Moreno, I was Dominican, but I was never black. And I definitely was not African-American. So for me, these two identities never really, you know, came together. And I feel that that's what, for me, really changed my mind uh, a few years ago. And I started to search for, for my identity, but it took a long time. And I feel that now with this project, um, I was able to find myself and finally have a name for my identity. 
I think I have a very similar experience to Daniel, um, except that I didn't grow up around people of my uh, same ethnic group. So my parents migrated to the D.C. area, and um, there weren't a lot of Puerto Ricans there at the time. And the the dialogue is very much uh, similar to what Daniel experienced, where there wasn't a dialogue about our blackness, our ethnicity, our appearance, what we ex- experience on an everyday basis within the community. Um, so it was almost invisible and just never discussed. But for us moving through the world, it was just so obvious that we were treated so differently than our parents or our friends or our siblings or cousins, um, that there was just really something lacking. So instead of having affirmative conversations that really um, you know, recognized who we are and how we move through the world, it was more of a negative, that's not who you are, you're not one of them, um, we're different kind of conversation, which, you know, as you increase your consciousness, you recognize that that's a really anti-Black um, sentiment that you're being um, exposed to. How much of those attitudes do you think are carried over from Latin America? For non-Latino listeners, something that, you know, there's like this weird conversation that happens sometimes when you talk about race in Latin America, and, and the conversation kind of goes along the lines of, well, we see race differently in Latin America. We all get along in Latin America. And everyone, I mean, if you have... ¿Cómo se diría dos dedos de frente? Uh, if you have one, una neurona, you know that's not true. You know, you know there's a lot of race issues in Latin America. So, you know, what do you think of that? Well, you mentioned something interesting, and you mentioned um, the idea of the dialogue and that in Latin America the, the concept of race is very different. And I want to really make a connection between um, the United States and Latin America. The thing is that in the United States, the black experience is totally different from that of the black experience in Latin America. Why? Well, because you had the one drop rule. One drop made you black in the United States. Whereas in Latin America, I I really do feel that one drop of white blood makes you white. (laughs) So you have a lot of people with my skin tone, which is, you know, dark, moreno, that will say... Ah, no. Mis abuelos son españoles. I'm like, um, okay. My grandparents are from Spain. Up to a point, (laughs) that was me. And... I had to learn how to grow that because I'm not accepted by people who um, reinforce ideas of white supremacy. That's, you know, not, that's not where I belong. So I really had to understand that. And talking about this dialogue of race relations in Latin America, there, there really is no dialogue, you know. And if there is, it's like everyone just shoves it under the table. Let's not talk about it. Let's ignore the fact that we do have black blood. And let's embrace and let's mejorar la raza by mixing in with white people. And that's really the dialogue that's happening. So there's definitely an attempt to separate when really the conversations can be very similar, but they just have not yet gotten to the same space, which is one of the reasons why we were excited to tap into a youth um, culture and space to have young people also begin to become part of that conversation and move it in a direction that those of us who are older, considered elders, or just, you know, kind of living an analog life, as I always joke, you know, we just don't have the same kind of pull as a young person might to uh, begin those conversations and do that hard work because it's exhausting work. From, well, from an even older perspective, from my perspective, <laughs> you guys are young compared to me, but I'm noticing a lot more of that identity affirmation among black Latinos here in the United States recently, maybe within the last, I don't know, like five years or so. Mm-hmm. You know, why is that? And, and what changed things? Is it, like you said, is it the youth that is no longer 
pushing it under the table. And we should mention that Daniel is a, a, a student at City University of New York. So, Daniel, you are really in touch with that very young population. I am. And it's interesting that you say that because I, I do agree with that statement that it has been really in the past, you know, five years. Um, but I feel that for myself, I started to notice that I was um, oppressed in ways that people of color in this country also were. And I started to notice that, you know, I was indeed black. And it took me a while to say, I'm black. I never really said it to myself until 2010. And it, it was then when I started searching online. And was I there started... an event? Was there something that happened that made you realize that? It, it, it was through the Internet that I started looking up terms um, such as, well, I started with the word Dominican. And then I went to Wikipedia. I looked, you know, oh, there are 80 to 90 percent people of African descent. I clicked on that. I clicked on notable Dominicans. I looked at skin color. I started just looking at all these terms. And it was through that that I found books, I found websites, and I eventually came uh, and I found the Latinegros Project, and I've been part of it for a year now. You know, it wouldn't be all Latino if we didn't play some music uh, to help tell this story. And what we've done is we've collected a handful of songs that reflect Afro-Latino tradition from various countries, and then we've matched them up with contemporary musicians, contemporary artists, contemporary producers who have taken that tradition and then expanded it. And since both Danielle and Bianca are uh, of the beautiful Caribbean, Felix, you picked a really lovely Caribbean song. Well, we're going to start with something from the Dominican Republic. This is Bachata. It's from an album that has classic Bachata Roja. And this artist is named Juan Bautista, and the name of the song is Yo Te Tengo Pena. Then we're going to segue into a piece of music produced by the DJ Uproot Andy, where he takes bachata into this space age, man, and really does something cool with it. But first, tradition, and then listen to Uproot Andy. The other night, I was at this party in Mexico. I, well, it was actually like 7 in the morning. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this guy and I were talking about bachata. Bachata is one of my favorite forms of music. It's this Dominican form of music. It has this really amazing history. Anyway, and I told him, like, you know, bachata, like if you when you dance bachata, it's like a vertical lovemaking. And he was like, <laughs> Oh, I think I'm not doing it right. No, but um so I mean bachata's bachata is so interesting, you know, because in the Dominican Republic, when it was bachata roja, Daniel, you know this so much better than I do, but <laughs> it was, it was, you know, really frowned upon, especially by the dictator Trujillo. And part of that was 
because it was seen as this vulgar, yes. lower class read code word for very black music. Indeed. And I actually found that out um, not so long ago. Um, and I was actually surprised because, you know, for me growing up, um, like, you know, late 1990s and early 2000s, uh, when I went to the Dominican Republic to live, I was listening to bachateros like Elvis Martinez. And, you know, the, the, his songs were just so passionate and full of love. And I love these songs. And when I found this out, I was like, oh, wow. But, you know, I was like, why? And I, I, I found online that this is like, oh, you know, this is the, the music of the young people. But for me, it was actually the music of the old people. Um, so it, it's pretty surprising. But now with all these um, new artists and changes, I'm like, mm, bachata is not the same. It's too pop. <laughs> too pop. Yeah. Um, Daniel and Bianca, I want to ask you guys, um, as you are embarking and have embarked on this road of self-discovery and, and facing, confronting the issues that really are important to our community um how how do you does your family react to to this and and daniel uh, for being from a dominican family how does your family react to you saying uh, i'm black yeah you know we have um stories right tons and tons <laughs> of stories to share about family and the decision that i've made with my family um you know i kind of feel like i'm the standard um person from a Latino family. You know, I came out looking completely different from everybody else in my family. We have someone with blonde hair and blue eyes. My parents um, are very, very fair-skinned, straight hair, um, and they have been mistaken and passed for white for a majority of the time that they lived in the U.S. Um, you know, people were shocked when my mother began to speak, speak Spanish. So I, they moved to the world in a very different way. Um, and then I came out, and to this day, I don't know if my parents uh, know that they raised a woman of color. I don't think, I don't think it's like connected to them yet. <laughs> um, because they, you know, see me as their daughter, yet not always as um, a woman of color. And a Bianca, for, of, since so. we're doing radio, I, um, our audience can't see how, you know, well, you're a very beautiful woman. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, um, you, you don't have uh, blonde hair. Right. I and mean, blue yeah. eyes. <laughs> I colored it. But, you know, yeah, it's not, um, yeah, I, you know, I don't look like members of my family. And that's so typical, I think, for many families from the Caribbean, um, but also just where, you know, the transatlantic slave trade hit up. I mean, it's just the way that colonization has worked, how exploration and conquest has worked. Um, so the conversations that I have with my family around my blackness are really, they're not exactly happening. And that's for a couple of different reasons. I am older. Um, maybe Felix is older, but I'm, you know, in my 30s. Nobody my... is as old as Felix. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's, I, my parents are older. And so, you know, conversations about this stuff, they're kind of fixed in their perspective. But they're, you know, my mother has Alzheimer's, so she doesn't remember what we're going to talk about. So at the end of the day, you know, you, I really did have to decide which battles am I going to choose um, to have conversations with my parents about. And, you know, I choose to have the you're not going to have grandkids conversation over the um, black conversation. <laughs> so um, that's my personal choice. Um, but I'm sure Daniel has other stories <laughs> as well. Well, for me, it really is a battle because, as I said, when back in 2010, when I found myself, I found me, my identity and I was growing into it. Um, I, I tried to have these conversations with my parents and my family, and it really didn't go well. You know, it just happened that it was like, no, yo no soy negra. My mom just like, no, I'm not black. But I was like, but look at our skin color. And she was like, yeah, but no. And it, it was really <laughs> just that, you know, it, we can't really move beyond that. 
However, um, my mother is on, on the dark side, but she's lighter than me. But her hair is not Afro-textured. Um, it's more of, she gets confused a lot with um, being from like India or, um, or like Indo-Guyanese. She gets that, um, but she does not get, oh, she's black. No, um, my father is really light-skinned. His parents had blue eyes. Um, and my, when my mother was pregnant, her fear was um, of having a black baby with blue eyes because she thinks that that doesn't look well. Mm-hmm. So that was really um, one of her concerns. But no, my family, they can't move beyond that. They're like, yo seré morena, but I'm not black. I might be brown, but I'm not black. And no, it's, it's primarily amongst the younger generation that, you know, we talk about this and we socialize with other people of color. But no, my family doesn't really take it well. It's important that if you do come from families like Daniel, Daniel's and ours, to know that you can still survive living in that type of environment. You can still build a community. You can still have chosen family. And you can still be all the person that you are and find other ways to cope that aren't you know, reinforcing a harmful pattern um, and that don't isolate you further from your family. Because I think that's a, a struggle for all of us as well is, you know, where's the line for me to draw between, you know, being able to spend holidays with my family, being able to live in the same home as my family, yet they know that they that aspects of my identity are completely ones that they're ashamed of. Right. There are ways to do it. It's not easy. I mean, and it probably won't ever be easy. But, um, you know, having support systems and support networks and just places where you can go um, to remind yourself that you're not alone, that you're not as different as your family wants to think you are, um, and that there really is a space for Latineros it is, was really the drive and is the drive for having the project um, still exist and for having it be online where anybody from all over the world can access it. Okay, before we talk to you about some of the stories that you hear on your website and from the project and some of the things that come up, let's stop just briefly for a little bit of some more music. Okay, this time we're going to go to Colombia the African-influenced music of Colombia from the Pacific Coast. We're going to start with an album uh, by a group called Herencia de Timbiqui. And this is a a CD that Jasmine and I picked up when we traveled there in uh, November of 2010. Herencia de Timbiqui is a group of musicians uh, who play various forms of music in uh, Bogota, but they specifically work with uh, traditional music in this group. And we're going to hear a song that they do called Pacifico. And then... I'm going to guide you into the next modern version of this. And, and so check this out. Starts with traditional marimba from Colombia, which is a big part of the Colombian culture. Se toma un biche en la madrugada Mientras se pone a Marimba is like such a special instrument. So they're also using some traditional drums from the Pacific mm-hmm. coast that look like West African djembes with the mm-hmm. stick. Mm-hmm. And here, listen to this bass part. Mm-hmm. 
Now we're gonna switch over to listen to this bass part. This is Bomba Estéreo from their album Elegancia Tropical. are both from Colombia and what they've done is they've really transformed that tradition that comes from both the Atlantic and Pacific coasts of Colombia into their powerful amazing sound that they do and this particular track is called Bosque and like I said you can hear that bass boom 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 that's what they imported and then you layer all these other electronics onto it to make this really great song you're listening to Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. This week, we're jumping back in time to celebrate the last week of Black History Month by revisiting an interview we did back in 2014 with two of the people behind a digital cultural archive of Afro-Latinx history and popular culture. Here's more of that interview. Earlier, you talked about some of the things that come into the project, and I wanted to circle back to that. What kind of stories do you guys hear from people who write into the project what kind of themes constantly pop up, and how do you guys deal with them? Well, we get a lot of questions from young people, and they ask questions like, what am I? Can I identify as Latina? Can I identify as a Latinegro? You know, what's the process? Um, and, you know, those are questions that we really can't answer for people, but um, we can help guide them to have a conversation not only with followers, but um, with people in their communities as well. And to think about, okay, well, what does it mean that you may move to the world with certain types of privilege or may experience certain types of oppression because of the way that you look and because of where you come from? Um, so it really depends on the day, but we get a range of questions all the time that really are rooted in those three topics. We have a lot of um, dialogue. A lot of people are reblogging posts and they're starting conversations. Um, other times what we do have, and we get a lot of this, are representations of, of Latinos. We get pictures, we get videos, and that people really like because it's something easy that they could see and relate to and people post that. And, and it's something that I, I feel that we need to have. We need to have that representation. So that's something that we really do focus a lot on and that younger people uh, really do pay attention to. I, I also wanted to ask you guys, you know, um, I live in Mexico right now. I'm from Argentina. And one thing that is really hard um, to, to explain almost to someone who has never been to Latin America is it's absolutely amazing. You turn on the television and you will see, I would say, 99.5% of the people who are reading the news, who are acting, who are entertaining you. 99.5% of them look nothing like the population of that country. <laughs> it is amazing. I mean, every you turn on the TV, you would think you are in Russia. How much of the perception and, and the, the issues of racism within our community is something that needs to change inside of our community, in the entertainment industry of our own communities? Yes, Latin America, I definitely agree. And, and it's something that, that's one of the reasons why I, I don't watch Dominican media. I don't watch Dominican news. It's because the people there are like, every woman standing there, even the entertainers, the dancers, they're all very white. The The TV host, the show host is very white. And I'm like, 90 to 90% of the country is Afro-descendant. How is this possible? And when we are on the show, we're always like the crazy black person 
or the over-sexualized woman or something. And let's like let's not even go that far. In the United States, I watch some Latino news. But the one person that I saw myself represented is in Ilia Calderon, an Afro-Colombian woman. And she was the first person that I really said, wow, there's someone that looks like us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why music really um, uh, penetrates for many Latinos because that's where we really see each other first um, and hear each other. And that's a really amazing thing to have. And so, you know, I remember growing up in Washington, D.C. and going to free concerts that Celia Cruz would do um, for the Latinos in the community. And this was like 30 years ago, you know, but to see this ultra-feminine, um, dark-skinned Latina speaking, you know, Spanish and just being in these outrageous costumes. I mean, it it's hard not to be impacted by that, you know, representation and that performance. Um, and to this day, like, that's a legacy that she's laid that we can see in just so many different genres, um, you know. It's it's dance hall queen culture in many ways, and we see that now with, you know, different types of uh, popular artists and their representations um, borrowing from her. But um, you know, people like La Lupe were really you know important in our community as well because they were not only um, performers and cultural producers of music, but they also lived lives that were flawed. They weren't perfect, you know, and. That's who they were. They were completely human. And that was something that's really um, important for people to see because it's it reminds you that you're human as well. And that even though you might not be an entertainer or a performer, that there is someone that you can connect with and see yourself in. Well, let's talk about that for a second because going back, like I had no idea that uh, Sammy Davis Jr.'s mother was Cuban. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward a little bit and... Now, you have people on the air in uh, in entertainment and in news even who are right out front with their ethnicity. And I'm thinking of Soledad O'Brien, mm-hmm. on, from who was, was on CNN, who's been very, very open about her Cuban and Puerto Rican ancestry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Zoe Saldana now in the Star Trek movie, which mm-hmm. I loved. Uh, Rosario, <laughs> sorry, Rosario Dawson, you know, I mean, yeah. there, are, it's a, it's, it's a different mindset now. And mm-hmm. these, these, uh, these entertainers and things are embracing that now. Right. And, you know, and in a very political way, which I appreciate. So, you know, I think back to how revolutionary watching, um, oh, what's it called? The Spike Lee film about the Buffalo Soldiers, Miracle at St. Anna. And the main character is a Latinegro. Not only is it Laz Alonzo, who already is a black Latino, but the story is about a black Puerto Rican man um, based on his lived experiences. And, you know, to have Spike Lee cast um, one of us to play us and to have this film blow up and it not blow up in the United States (laughs) um, is really telling. And the fact that a majority of the funding for that film was not from the United States is also very telling. You know, I think having uh, representation is just essential. And, you know, we can think of, like, a ton of other uh, performers and actors and what have you, but I think the difference today is that people can actually speak out in a way that may not have been possible. So, for example, your Sammy Davis Jr. example, for so long people thought that he was Puerto Rican. And, um, you know, that was a question that came up for a minute at the Latinos Project as well. People were like, is he Cuban? Is he Puerto Rican? And it had to be revealed that he didn't want to um, come out as being Cuban because of the political ramifications or backlash that he was worried he would receive in addition to being a black man. 
um, because of the politics at the time. And to see how that still lives after his death um, is really telling um, from a political landscape. Now, speaking of uh, Cuba from uh, Sammy Davis Jr., we're going to take a music break right now with some Cuban music that I brought in. We're going to start with uh, a trio of Afro-Cuban musicians. It's Bebo Valdez on piano, Cachao on bass, and Patato Valdez on the conga. They're going to play what you can call, it's Cuban son, okay? Then we're going to segue into uh, a piece of music that I thought was that brilliantly combined Cuban son and electronica, and then we're going to throw in a little Santeria music just to make it even more interesting. This is a track. We're going to start with the Bebo Valdez trio playing a track called El Relo de Pastora. This is a very elegant form of Cuban piano style, which Bebo Valdez was famous for. Now we segue into this piece of music by a British dubstep producer named Mala. He traveled to Cuba and recorded a bunch of Cuban musicians playing various Cuban traditional styles. So he's using the same piano style Then he brilliantly switches into a Santeria feel that slowly percolates under that piano. And I'm gonna mix in now something to give you an idea of where that Santeria feel comes from a very slow, plodding groove, and that's what he approximated on the previous track. This is from an album called Bembe from an artist by the name of Milton Cardona. It was released in 1985. It's a collection of songs to the orishas in Santeria. This is very, very traditional. It's so cool to, to reach out to people who are doing new and very innovative and exciting projects. Thank you so much for what you do. Thank you. I wanted to say that um, a couple of years ago, um, I was looking online and I actually found a Latino. And it was through you that I discovered someone from my own country, Rita Indiana. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered Susana Vaca. Mm -hmm. So I think that social media is important because, you know, people are actually looking for this information. They're looking for these spaces. They're looking for community. And I was one of those people. And I still am. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking for it. So... You know, it's mutual. Uh, it's because of Alt Latino that I discovered these artists. And, you know, you start looking for people and you see yourself um, in these representations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's definitely um, an important thing. You know, social media is definitely going to change 
um, these dialogues of you know identity and representation. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for saying that, Danielle. I'm I'm definitely from the analog world, so <laughs> <laughs> so so analog to pay. Well. Yeah, so that having that kind of impact on social media is, is pretty astounding. Definitely. Speaking of Susana Baca, we have a track, in fact, from Susana Baca. She's a leading exponent of Afro-Peruvian culture, and she's internationally known because her records have been selling all over the place. She was also named as their Minister of Culture in Peru in 2011, so she's a very high-profile performer that explores all of those traditions. We're going to start with a track called Cardo y Ceniza, and then we're going to segue into a group called Nova Lima. From They're all from Peru, and they're going to do their updated version of the song Cardo. Check this one out. Si he de fundir mi espacio frente al tuyo. This is a rhythm called Lando, and it is uh, performed in six, very much like Santeria, but much slower. It's like drawn out. And that is one of the main areas that Susana Baca has worked in. Mi corazón, si estoy de muerte. Mi corazón, si estoy de muerte. So here's that modern version of Lando. Well, that was cool to hear that Danielle discovered Afro-Latinx artists through all Latino. That reinforces our commitment to representation at all levels, even six years after this interview first aired. That was from the 2014 Alt-Latino episode called Black, Latino, and Proud, Black History Month with Alt-Latino. You know, looking back at our Black History Month coverage that year, I see an examination of the musical ties and differences between Haiti and the Dominican Republic that featured one of our interviews with the respected Dominican musician Rita Indiana. And we also talked to some musicians about the history of the impact of hip-hop in Latin America, two circles of the African diaspora coming together. And can I brag for a moment Take a moment to go to npr.org slash altlatino and click on any year going back to 2010. There is a lot to discover if you're new to the show. And that's a wrap for this week's Alt Latino. Thanks again to Alt Latino intern Kat Spasado for producing this show. You have been listening to Alt Latino from NPR Music. I'm Felix Contreras. Thanks for listening and be safe out there. <laughs>